Hey y'all, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor at Emmanuel and Hookset. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast. Our goal is to be a blessing to everyone who listens as you continue on your journey of faith. It's also our hope that you'll be encouraged to find a church to belong to so you can plug into that congregation and bless others with the gifts and experiences that God has entrusted you with. Well, I hope this podcast is a blessing to you and encourages you to get out there and be the blessing. God bless. Second message in the series, Expect Jesus. The second message. Are you guys ready for this? I hope that you were blessed last week. What did we talk about last week? Expect Jesus in what? In your ordinary, in your everyday life. When you get up, when you, when you go to bed, when you sit down, and when you're walking in the way. This is what Deuteronomy says. Teach your children the word of God. And, and we need to learn how to expect Jesus even in our ordinary everyday, mundane, boring lives, right? We got to learn how to expect him to be with us. We got to learn how to open our mornings in prayer where we worship God and we ask him to to show himself to us and we confess our sin and, and we receive the gift of the filling of the Holy Spirit. We need to learn to do that on the daily. Now, today we're going to move on to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, uh, you know what that means, right? Before they came together? I looked at, I looked at a teenager yesterday, and, and I was messing around with her and her boyfriend, and I said, I got your number. And she's like, what? How do you know my number? I'm like, what? How do you know my number? I'm like, I don't have your phone number. I have your number. I don't get it. So you can't take for granted that people know what it means when it says before they came together, can you? I mean, I got your number means I I know you, right? That's what it means. I know you. I know you. I figured you out. Anyways, coming together means sexually, right? Mary was a virgin. And this is why this is put in the passage of Scripture, to make sure that we understand this is a fulfillment of the prophecy given by Isaiah 700 years before Jesus' birth, was that before they came together, right, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. He didn't want to shame her, right? This is a good dude when you start thinking about what happened to Joseph, His bride was found to be pregnant, and he knew that he didn't have sex with her, right? So who did? Nobody did. The Holy Spirit wrapped himself in flesh within the womb of Mary. So he was going to put her away secretly. Good guy. Good guy. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you, marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. 
And then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. He did not know her. Know is the same thing as coming together. Okay? You all get that? He did not have sexual relations with this wife of his until Jesus was born. He didn't know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. See, we, we have a mistaken idea that Mary continued to be a virgin throughout her life. And that's terribly mistaken because later in the Gospels, we see that Jesus has brothers, half-brothers, Mary's half. As a matter of fact, the book of James was written by one of Jesus' brothers. I think it's fascinating when you read the book of James and read the Sermon on the Mount, you can hear the same voice. Have you ever noticed that? When you read Paul's letters, you can tell it's Paul talking through all of his letters. When you read Peter, I mean, it's Peter, but when you read James, you hear Jesus, his influence in his home life. I listen to my brother Tracy preach every now and then, and while he's incredibly boring, no, I'm just kidding, Tracy, Um, (laughs) he's my big brother. They tormented me when I was a kid. They tied me to a tree under a hornet's nest and threw sticks at it. I mean, it was, a, it was rough growing up with Randy and Tracy. And anyways, uh, I will hear Tracy preach very infrequently because we both work on Sundays. And um, he'll say certain things, certain colloquialisms and, and certain phrases. And I'll be like, wow, that sounds so much like me. Or my brother Randy. I have his, his uh, daughter, Michelle, works for me, my niece. And we'll be working. And I'll be saying stuff. And she's just looking at me like, First, she says, you are so bad. And then she says, you're exactly like my dad. And I think that's hilarious because he's, yeah, I am. <laughs> he will save their people from their sins. Did you notice that as we were reading through that passage? Did you notice that that's what it said when they said, call his name Jesus? How many guys noticed that? Was it capitalized and emboldened? Yes, it was, because that's so important. Sin is a scary topic. Sin is a scary topic today. Nobody really wants to talk about sin. It means that that we'd have to kind of admit that we've done something wrong. The world does not want to believe in wrong today. The world doesn't want to believe in truth today. You know one of my most despised phrases? How many of you guys want to know? Thank you. I got a few hands. Anybody else? Because I'm not going to say it unless you guys all say yes. Not all of you. I'm going to embrace my truth. I'm living my truth. Took me a long time to find my truth. Yeah, but your truth is patently false. It's proven to be false because the facts don't support your truth. So it's not true. I don't believe in absolute truth. Your belief that there is no absolute truth is absolute truth to you. Your argument falls apart as as soon as you say, I don't believe in absolute truth. You see what's happening to the world today. There's no absolutes. There's no truth. There's no real sin. I mean, we're, they're reserving the word sin for those things that are really egregious that everybody seems to hate. 
But the only interesting thing about that is that gradually cultures shift and change in what they think is despicable and what they think is not. You realize that, don't you? And the influence of the church in the West is shrinking because those who are truly saved and full of the Holy Spirit are fewer even if the church is large. The true church is shrinking. And the Bible says as it comes closer and closer to the end that there'll be a great falling away. I, I believe we're, we're in, that, in that process and we have been for many, many years many years. People don't want to admit to sin. They don't want to look at sin. They don't want to think of sin. It conjures up visions of of judgment and condemnation, and it makes us uncomfortable. And for some here today, it means shame. For some believers, it means shame. It means uh, you blew it, and you are full of shame, or, or it means someone else sinned against you, And you are buying lies that it was your fault and you're living in shame. And shame is a terrible, terrible thing. There are many people bound in the church and outside of the church by shame. Christians and non-Christians alike. Even though People don't like to admit that there is sin. Most people, when they look in the mirror, don't like what they see. Why? Because they know on some level they have not lived up to their own standards or to the standards that God has set. Shame is a big deal. Unfortunately, shame has a way of keeping us from the one that can free us from it. So we're going to talk about expecting Jesus. The good news is he came to save his people from their sin. And if I were you this morning, I would be asking this question, how do I become one of his people? How do I want, listen, if you're here and you've never been to church, you haven't been to church much, or maybe you've been to church that didn't preach much of the Bible, and, and you are sitting here this morning and you are struggling with sin and struggling with shame, and you've never come to Jesus to be your personal one and only, once and for all Savior, this is what it means to become one of his people. It means you turn to God and put your faith in Christ and ask him to forgive your sin, past, present, and future, to come in and fill you with his spirit. Guys, that's what it means. Do you know Jesus like that? Have you been forgiven? Are you free from the burden of your sin because of what Jesus has done? Are you still living your life trying to make up for everything you're screwing up? Now listen, where you can fix things, you fix them. But I don't know about you, how many, time, how many of you have sinned and you can't fix it? It's too late. The person may have passed away that you sinned against. The person may have moved away that you sinned against. The person may, you may have completely lost contact with these people. What do you do then? What do you do when you sin and, and there's just no way to fix it? What do you do with that? You just live with it. There's a better way. There's a, there's a better way. So we need to take a look at Jesus this morning. And, and this, this morning's message is expect Jesus in your, in your shame. Expect Jesus in your shame. So let's take a look at this concept. We're going we're gonna to go to John chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, I hope you'll turn there. I hope you'll highlight it. 
Folks, we, we need to understand that when we expect Jesus in our shame, it's not what we might expect. It's not what you might expect. And this is a problem with the enemy. He comes in and he tries to steal our joy. He comes in and he tries to steal our peace. And he comes in and he tries to steal our hope because he's given us the wrong image of Jesus. And when we sin, the enemy wants to, wants to encourage us to run away from the only one that can take care of our sin. So when we talk about expect Jesus in your shame, listen, I, I, I'm not preaching to guilt trip you. I'm not preaching to destroy you, to crush you with a burden or a weight. I'm preaching to free you from sin and from shame. So let's take a look. Let's take a look at John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. Now, early in the morning, he came into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them, the scribes and Pharisees. Now, he's teaching. He's in the middle of teaching and here comes the scribes and Pharisees. Who are they? Anybody know, right? They're the hyper-religious people of their day. The scribes were people of great renown um, and they came to Jesus while he's teaching, brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. What? How is that even possible? Break into the bedroom? How did they do that? This is a setup. In fact, in the Old Testament law, when people were caught in adultery, they weren't just to drag the woman to judgment. They were to drag the man too. And the law said they should be both, both be stoned. Not with a blunt, but with rocks. Track with me here, guys. So first of all, these scribes and Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to test him. They're trying to mess with him. And they've already screwed up by only dragging the woman, which I believe reveals that this was a complete setup. Now, Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned, but what do you say? Now, this is where I want to address what happens when we fail, what happens when we fall. A lot of us see this. Maybe that's not exactly the vision you have. But we see this disappointed, angry figure. How do you expect God to respond to your guilt? How do you expect God to respond to your guilt? Jesus was confronted with her at her worst moment. She was publicly shamed. She was condemned to death. And most wouldn't risk the political implications of freeing her. She was beyond doubt guilty, caught in the very act. What do you think this woman expected? She expected to be condemned, killed, stoned. It was illegal for the Israelites to take these matters into their own hands. Rome frowned upon that. Expect Jesus in your shame. Consider now how he treated this woman. Adultery is a sin. 
Now, you might have heard in the world that it's not a sin. I'm not happy. I'm leaving my husband because I'm not happy. There's no abuse. There's no cheating. There's just, I'm not happy, and God wants me to be happy, and so I'm leaving this person. Well, when you took your vows, most of them say, for better, for worse, in richer and poorer, in sickness and in health. But I'm not happy. How many of you guys have kids? No, you're spoiled. You don't want to do the work. I get it. It's hard sometimes. Let's take a look at how Jesus dealt with this woman. She's probably accusing herself. The men have accused her. There wasn't an ounce of hope in this scene. She's thrown on the ground in the dust. She's probably half naked, if not completely naked. Probably tears streaking through the dirt on her face. Hair is a mess, sweat, the stench of sin is on her. Maybe she's trying to cover up. Maybe she's trembling. What have I done? I have blown it now. It's too late. 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 These thoughts rushing through her head. Trying to figure out how to get out of this maybe. But there's no way to escape. There's nowhere to go. They said this, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear them. I added them, just so you'd know. He stoops down on the ground. Now, where is this woman? She's thrown on the ground in front of him, and he stoops down on the ground. you got to hold on to this, because this is really cool. So when they continued asking him, Mom, 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 mom. You know what I'm saying? You're not answering them for a reason usually, and it's not because you haven't heard them. Although yesterday, Chloe, it was I had no idea you were asking my She's like, Dad, I was calling you for like 10 minutes. And I'm like, I don't think so, Chloe. I didn't hear you. She finally had, who called me pastor? Audrey's like, and Audrey can, she gets some lungs. Right, Angel? I'm like, what? They continued asking him. They continued asking him. He raised himself up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And then he stooped down again and he wrote on the ground. I love this. So I put it down. Jesus stooped down. That's true religion, God reaching for man. False religion is man just keep reaching for God, trying to, trying to fix everything ourselves, trying to thinking in our arrogance that we can somehow clean ourselves up enough that we would be allowed to go into heaven and, and come into the throne room of God, somehow thinking that we have the ability to clean ourselves. There's a baby over there. He was giving me a look today. We are like babies. Has Connor yet changed his own diaper? What do you think will happen when he does that? He's changing. Anybody have a kid? A baby, right? They're toddlers. They're still in diapers, but they're old enough to know how to figure this out. 
And they're like, ooh, I'm going to clean this up. And then you have poop all over the walls and on your carpet and on you. That's what it's like when we think we can clean ourselves up. You can't do it. And so Jesus stoops down. When I read that, let me tell you, man, this is, this, I love it when things jump off the page. He stoops down on her level. And he wrote on the ground with his finger. And this is the other thing I love about this passage. I I missed it for so many years. He's ignoring them. He's ignoring them. He's ignoring the condemners. He's ignoring the voices that are saying, oh, she sinned, she failed, she fell, she's evil, she's wicked, kill her. He's ignoring their voices. And he just stoops down. And they don't like to be ignored. People that are judgmental and self-righteous and holier than thou and high and mighty hate it when you ignore their filth. And self-righteousness is one of the worst sins on the face of the earth. So if you're somebody in this church and you think you're better than everybody else, let me just disabuse you of that fallacy. You are probably worse than everybody else. One of the greatest inabilities of man is our inability to see our own faults. And that's why we have the Bible. It's the perfect law of liberty. It's the mirror of the Word of God that when we look into it, we can see our failings and we can see our faults and we can bring them to Jesus. Jesus stoops down and he starts writing on the ground. Man, I'll tell you, he acted like he didn't hear them. And he stooped down. I was reading something. It says when you're talking to children, When you're talking to children, you shouldn't do this. And and I thought that was awesome because they just, they're not on your level and you can't communicate well with them. And so I've taken every now and then, you probably see me around here if I'm talking to a kid, I'm I'm often coming down like this to their level so I can see them. So I can communicate with them. Jesus stoops down. Oh, there's a Gaither vocal band song. He came down to our level when I couldn't come up to his. Oh, dude, it's a great song. We, we, get this, we get this impression that Jesus is not willing to get dirty. He's not willing to get into our sin. He's not willing to bring up the, the muck and the mire. One of my favorite hymns is called, He Brought Me Out. He Brought Me Out of the Miry Clay. Man, he got dirty. His feet got dirty. He, he was crucified with sinners on each side. He, 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 he let a woman who was a, a filthy, adulterous, possibly a prostitute, wash his feet with her hair. Guys, he's an amazing person. And we have the wrong view of Jesus. So many times, this is our view of Jesus. This is a famous Picasso. I, I love Picasso. I didn't like Picasso before I understood that Picasso also did this. Picasso's early works, his early works were much more realistic. As he got older, I think he got bored with it, and he's like, well, let's try something new. Who doesn't want to try something new? After a while, realism kind of gets boring, right? Jesus stooped down, rode in the sand, not, to, <laughs> not necessarily just to write in the sand. He stooped down to meet her in her shame and made himself of no reputation, the Bible says. To those of no reputation or a poor reputation, he, he stoops down to us. 
And Christian, this is a thing you need to understand. It doesn't change. Once you come to Jesus, it doesn't change. He still stoops down to get into our mess, to bring us up, to revive us, to cleanse us. I love abstract art, but when, when, ab, when we abstract the truth of Jesus, we begin to stray into more brokenness and more shame because we don't want to come to Jesus because we have this made-up Jesus in our minds. And maybe this made-up Jesus is because we had a terrible childhood with poor parenting. Have you ever said, oh, I'm sorry, Dad, and he says, yeah, forget about her or whatever. Somebody taught me this a long time ago. I can't claim credit. And they, they said, uh, when somebody comes to you and says, I'm sorry, say, I forgive you. Don't say it's no big deal or it doesn't matter, it's okay, whatever. Look at them and accept that they did wrong and free them from the wrong they did by acknowledging it and saying, I forgive you. Parents, when you don't do that for your kids, do not expect your kids to come to you when they mess up. When you are not offering forgiveness to your children, you're not offering mercy to your children, you're not offering grace to your children, don't expect your children to come to you. And, and here's the sad part, you're teaching them that that is what God is like. And some of you here this morning, to you, this is what God is like because your parents, your father, your mother, we're not forgiving, we're not grace-filled, we're not full of mercy. And when you blew it, all that happened was you were punished, not disciplined. There's a difference between chastening and punishment. Chastening is for the good of the person who is being chastened and disciplined. Punishment is for the good of the person doing the punishing. And sometimes chastening involves punishment, but it's always done in love for the person who is being disciplined. When my daughter was a little girl, she was five years old, she was going to kindergarten, and we were in this, this school district, and there was, there was a teacher, and I shall call her name Miss Granola. You have to have a, a, a blending and attention of grace and truth. Truth is, this daughter of mine, who shall remain nameless, was not terribly obedient to the teacher. It's time for reading time. Let's everybody sit on our reading mats. And all the other kids would sit down on their reading mats. And this other child, who shall remain nameless, I have two daughters, so don't think it's Chloe, um, would go off and this other daughter, whichever one she is, would go and do her own thing. And the teacher would blank, it's time to sit down. This went on for weeks. We had no idea. Until what happens when you're like, please sit down, please sit down, and it's like, oh, la, la. oh, butterfly. And um, eventually the person gets frustrated. It's awfully hard to teach people when they're not listening, isn't it? So she came out, we went to pick whichever daughter this was up. Do you remember this, Trish? It was awesome. I'm such a jerk sometimes. I've gotten better with age, I hope. But she came out and she's like, Mr. Davis, uh, Mrs. Davis, I, I, we've been having a hard time with your daughter. I'm like, what? She won't listen. She won't sit down. <laughs> Teacher, please save us. 
It wasn't exactly that bad, but you could see behind her eyes there was something going on. And um, blunt? No, I don't know, but granola. And uh, I said, well, have you disciplined her? Oh, no. We just tell her to sit down. We, no. I'm like, so did you graduate college? I was going somewhere with this. She's like, yes. It's like, how did you manage that? Now, I'm not being insulting. I'm trying to lead her, which was difficult because you can't teach people who don't want to listen. And she's like, well, yes. I'm like, how did you do that? She's like, um, uh, I got grades. And I'm like, oh. So you were able to go to college and do the work, get good grades, and graduate. How did, you, how did you do the work? Did you always want to do the work? Did you always feel like doing the work? No. You did the work because you had self-discipline. Do you think that the self-discipline fairy just poured self-discipline dust on you? Or is it possible that someone taught you discipline so that you could then learn to use it on yourself? Are you guys following? I don't know that she ever got it, but I explained to her that if it ever happens again, it won't happen again. And we got home with a daughter who shall not be named, and we disciplined her with love for her. Why? Because I want my children to grow up and be able to produce and be productive and successful in community. I want them to live with purpose and passion and pride. I want them to be able to provide for themselves and for others. So discipline done correctly, the motive is to help that person grow and mature, not just to destroy that person, not to crush that person's spirit. That used to drive me crazy because one of my daughters is a very free and wild spirit. And I, that's the thing I love most about her. You don't want to crush that. You want to teach her to channel it. I digress. When we have bad parenting, God is abstracted. He's abstracted so that we think if, if I come to God, then, then he's, he's probably going to crush me. Those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, he who is without sin, let him be the first to cast a stone went out one by one, beginning with the eldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone. And the woman was standing now in the midst, and when Jesus had raised himself up, he saw no one but the woman, and he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Some of y'all that haven't been to church for a while or haven't been to church at all, these words should probably shock you. Because... The world's abstraction of the true church of Jesus is that of a place of condemnation, self-righteousness, holier than thou. It's a place of judgment and condemnation, right? That's what the world thinks of the church. It's an abstraction of the truth. And the sad part is because, the, listen, the enemy has deceived so many believers. Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one and this is where she recognizes who she's talking to, Supreme One, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no 
more. Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the sand. And I've sometimes wondered what he wrote. And some people think that Jesus wrote in the sand um, the, all of the sins of the guys that had gathered her and thrown her in the dust. And he's just writing out their sins. Lust, hatred, envy, jealousy, right? We just think he's writing out their sins and they're embarrassed because of that. Uh, they weren't embarrassed until he said, he is without sin. Let him be the first to cast a stone. But he's writing in the dust. What is he writing in the dust? I don't know. Nobody really knows. But maybe he wrote something like that. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. He's dealing with a broken, wounded woman. Paul later would write that famous phrase, the greatest of these is love. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Love never fails. I love the idea of Jesus ignoring these hypocrites. I love the idea that they're so full of themselves and so self-righteous. And in just a few short moments, the perfect one destroys their illusions. How powerful is it that Christ stoops down and turns his back on them? I just wonder what was going through the woman's mind. I think maybe... I try to get an image, like I think maybe that she was here just terrified and she looks up and she sees Jesus stooping down and he's writing in the sand. And I think for the first moment, maybe in her entire life, she has some of that hope. Maybe there's hope for me yet. Maybe it's not too late for me. She found a light. In that person, stooped down, writing in the sand, she found a light that was filling her darkness. And this is what shame does to us, isn't it? Shame fills us with darkness. And the enemy abstracts the person of Christ, and instead of running to Jesus, we run away from him because we either don't want to get caught, or we're just terrified to admit to him what we've done or what we've thought. And we shy away from his presence. But the only real light and the only real hope is Jesus. That's it. It's just Jesus. It's not us. And Paul once wrote in the book of Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who clean up their act. Right? There's no condemnation to those who aren't constantly messing up. Is that what it says? What does it say? To those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, we open the sermon that, with that phrase, he shall save his, his people from their sin. You need to become one of his people. And you do that by recognizing you're a sinner before a holy God without excuse, by birth and by choice. And you recognize that Jesus, like this woman, was taken in adultery. She looked up at him and she said, no Lord. She recognized that Jesus was Lord God in human form. He was the God-man Jesus. We recognize our sin before holy God. We recognize that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he died on the cross for every sin in the world, past, present, and future. And then we say, Lord, I believe you rose from the grave. You defeated sin and shame, and you rose from the grave. And I'm asking you the best way I know how to be my personal one and only Savior. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse my heart. If you're a believer, you're, you are in Christ Jesus. And this is what happens when you pray that prayer with a sincere heart that's sick of sin 
and wants change and wants cleaning, and you go to Jesus, it's the only source. The Bible says you are not condemned any longer. You are cleansed, you are forgiven, you are whole, and you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And He indwells you. And you're no longer under condemnation. For those of you that have come to Jesus, we forget this so easily, don't we? How many of y'all have blown it? Raise your hand. No, go ahead. Come on. We're not, we're dealing with shame here. You've blown it. Raise your hand. Come on. I've blown it. I blew it this week. I know it shocks some of you. I was not shocked, but I blew it. And one of the hardest things is to bring it to Jesus. Bring it to Jesus quickly. Pastor Z used to say, keep short accounts. Don't let the ledger fill up with sin until you finally break down and come to Jesus. As soon as you recognize you have failed and fallen, come to Jesus then. Because he wants you and he loves you. And listen, here's the thing. I learned this a long time ago and I'm still trying to practice. I'm still working it out. People say practice what you preach and I'm glad that they say practice. (laughs) I'm still trying to master. I'm still practicing, okay? Um, But you, you run away from Jesus when you need to run to him. And I'm practicing coming to him right away. Because what happens is when you fail and you fall and you sin, you're, you're filled with shame and you, you want to punish yourself sometimes. And you're like, once I'm sorry enough, once I've punished myself enough, well, then I'll come and he'll forgive me because, why? I've punished myself. I've, I've, I've beat myself up about this. I've, I've hurt myself and, and now he can forgive me. The problem with that is He paid for the sin already. And you paying for it by beating yourself to death is insulting to Jesus. You holding on to your sin, you're holding on to something that he bought and paid for with his blood. Who are you to steal from Jesus your sin? You need to bring it to him. He owns it, guys, ladies. He owns the sin of the world, bought, paid for. We are no longer under condemnation, which means this, and, and here's a part that I think is so vitally important. Um, one of the reasons I believe the church is losing its impact on the world is this right here. We walk in condemnation, we walk in sin. Instead of coming to God for forgiveness as soon as possible, we hold on to it, we beat ourselves up over it, we're filled with shame. And what do you look like when you're filled with shame? What do you look like when you've blown it? When, you, when you've blown it and, and, you're, and, you're, and you're just trying so hard to hide it and eventually you can't hide anymore. What do you look like? Just sad, dejected, disappointed in yourself, and you're just walking around, constantly reliving the failure in your life, do you think that is compelling at all to anyone? Do you? The Bible teaches us that we are to compel people to come in. We're to, we're to bring something that appeals to the lost and the lonely 
and the wicked and the weary, where, where to compel them to come in. And the Bible says, Peter says, always be ready to give an answer for those who inquire of you the hope that is in you. But if you're walking around and you're condemning yourself constantly, you're not bringing that sin to Jesus, and you're not getting relief from that shame. And listen, I'm not saying make excuses for it. You come without excuses, and what you can make right, you make right. When I'm a jerk to my wife or to my kids, I can't just go to Jesus and say, oh, Lord, please forgive me for being such a jerk today to Chloe. Please forgive me for being such, so mean to Nate. Now, I need to do that, don't I? Because I've not just offended Nate and Chloe, I've offended God. Especially as a dad, I'm to provide, protect these kids. I'm to display for them the likeness of Jesus. I need to make right. I need to go to Nate, Chloe, Trish, Kirsten and say, I'm, I'm sorry for, for acting that way. I'm sorry for hurting you. And this is, this, this is something else. I can't force them to forgive me. I can't force them to say, I forgive you. It's okay. I can't force them to do any of that. All I can do is repent and hope that they will grant me forgiveness. There's people that falsely repent, and when they go to confess, they confess, but their confession has a hook in it that you have to forgive them now. Your confession is garbage. They're human beings. They're not God. They have to deal with all the pain and hurt that you caused. And should they forgive you? Yes, they should forgive you as Christ. Listen, as, as God forgave us for Christ's sake, of course they should forgive you. But you don't have a right to demand their forgiveness. What you do have is a promise from God to ask for his. And the Bible says he will give it to you. So you're here tonight, today rather, and you're saying, Pastor, there's just stuff in my life and there's a shame in the life. What, 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 what do I do? 1 John 1, 9, if we will confess our sins. The word confess means to come into agreement with. Some of us think it just means admitting to what we've done. No, it's agreeing that what we have done is wrong. What we have done is sin. That is what confession means. Lord, this is what I've done, and I know in my heart that I have offended you, that it's wrong. And I want to claim the promise that you gave to me that if I would confess to you this sin, that you would forgive me my sin. It doesn't just say that. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. What, is, what else does he do? Okay, now wallow in it. Wallow in that sin. That's like when your son or daughter comes to you and says, hey, Dad, I'm sorry. I blew it. I'm sorry. And I look at them and I say, I forgive you. I forgive you. And then the next day I look at them and said, hey, you remember when? And you hold it over their head. You have not forgiven them. You've not cleansed them. You need to learn to look at them as if they never failed before. You need to put it away. Is that easy to do? It is. If the Holy Spirit is filling you. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, he, he enables you to do the impossible. If you're not, good luck. Because you can forgive them in your flesh, but you need to forgive them in your soul and in your heart. What happens when you begin to understand that God is not the boogeyman waiting to beat you up with a baseball bat with spikes sticking out of it, 
right? What if Jesus took the spikes? What, what does it mean when we begin to realize that God wants you to come to him? Even when you fail, even when you totally screw everything up, he wants you to come to him. What happens is you come to him and he forgives you and cleanses you and then you begin to live in his presence and this is kind of what that looks like. She's spinning around. I had vertigo the other day, so let's not do that. But we, we see this. We see, we see joy. Joy. Not walking around and long face sourness, not walking around in self-pity, not walking around with a burden of shame and sin constantly before your face. And when the devil tries to bring it up, you bring it back to the cross. You keep bringing it back to the cross. Jesus forgave me. You do what you have to to make things right. You, you ask for forgiveness from those that you've wronged, but you, once you bring it to Jesus, man, it's forgiven and you are free and he has borne your shame. And he says his burden is, uh, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And this is the burden that so many Christians carry, is the burden of shame when they should be walking around like this. This is why I believe the church is anemic today. Absolutely anemic. No power in the church. No power in the church because they're just staying in their sin Who wants that? Who wants that? But I have to feel this way to prove that I'm really sorry for what I did. No. You just got to bring it to Jesus sincerely and then live in joy. Do you know God's concerned about your joy? Psalm 52. What does the psalmist say? He confessed his sin to God. He really blew it, this guy. I mean, he blew it. And as he's confessing his sin, he's not afraid to say this, Lord, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. See, salvation is a gift from God, and he's not taking it back. But you can lose your joy. When you live in sin, you can lose your joy. David lived in sin for a long time. In fact, he lived in sin until the prophet Nathan confronted him and said, you are the man. Folks, we need to we need to confront ourselves. We need to bring these things to God and ask for his forgiveness. And he, listen, he will forgive you. He's not the angry old man in the sky. He's the one that came to the cross and died on it for you. You know, some of the people that Jesus called to be his disciples were some of the worst people. One of them was Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. Tax collectors are evil. Well, not currently, maybe. If you work for the IRS, I apologize. Most people don't like taxes, but what was happening in Israel was these tax collectors were skimming off the top. They were charging more than they should. They were, they were traitors to their own people, and they were despised. And here comes Jesus, and he sees Matt. Right? Matthew's not just hanging out on the street corner. He's sitting at his desk collecting unfair taxes from his own people. And he says, hey, follow me. What? You want this guy to follow you? But he's a tax collector. I don't want to go to church with somebody like that. That's who he calls. 
Mary Magdalene, possessed of seven demons. Seven! Number of completion. She was thoroughly possessed, and he freed her, and she followed him, and she was one of his disciples. Man, she was awesome! But she had been previously a wicked sinner. He's always calling people who are total mess-ups to come. Why would he stop calling you to come to him after you've been saved, after you've come to him the first time? Why would he stop saying, come back? He wouldn't. And he won't until you're dead. I have a saying that I coined years ago, if, God's, if you're not dead, God's not done. If you're here, there's still time for you to come back to Jesus, to come to him Repent of your sin and be forgiven and freed. To let go of your shame and live in joy. That's the only way we're going to be a compelling church, my friends. Hey, all Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to know more, please go to our website, emmanuelhooksit.com, where you'll find helpful links and resources and where you can contact us directly. That web address again is emmanuelhooksit.com. Bless God, get out there, and be the blessing.